All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Garanga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Srimate Bhakti Vinata Swami Niti Namane Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Bacharane Nirvasesa Sunyavadi Paskatya De Satarane Vande Ham Shri Guru Shri Uta Padakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavamsha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitam Stam Sajivam Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamsha it's January 13, 2021, from Hawaii over the internet, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 24, chanting the song sung by Lord Shiva, Text 23. Tatra Gandharva Makarnya Divya Marga Manoharam Vishim you Rajaputraste. Mirganda Pandavat Yanu. Please chant. Tatra. There. Gantarvam. Musical sounds. Akarnya. Hearing. Divya. Heavenly. Marga. Symmetrical. Manaharam. Beautiful. Vishishmu. They became amazed. Rajaputraha. All the sons of King Barhishat. Te. All of them. Murdanga. Drums. Panava. Kettle drums. Adi. All together. 
together. Anu. Always. Muted. Unmuted. So the Prabhupada's translation in purport. The sons of the king became very much amazed when they heard vibrations from various drums and kettle drums along with other orderly musical sounds pleasing to the ear. Purport. In addition to the various flowers and living entities about the lake, there were also many musical vibrations. The void of the impersonless, which has no variegatedness, is not at all pleasing compared with such a scene. Actually, one has to attain the perfection of Satchidananda, Brahma Samhita 5.1, eternity, bliss, and knowledge. Because the impersonalists deny these varieties of creation, they cannot actually enjoy transcendental bliss. The place where the Prachetas arrived was the abode of Lord Shiva. Impersonalists are generally worshippers of Lord Shiva, but Lord Shiva is never without variety in his abode. Therefore, wherever one goes, whether to the planet of Lord Shiva, Lord Vishnu, or Lord Brahma, there is variety to be enjoyed by persons full in knowledge and bliss. Tatra Gandharvamakarnya Divya Marga Manoharam Vishimsyu Rajaputraste Murdanga Panavadyanu The sons of the king became very much amazed when they heard vibrations from various drums and kettle drums along with other orderly musical sounds pleasing to the ear. Manaharam, as sometimes Krishna is described as Manaharam, uh, his name Hari, that he steals away the mind. So this, this music amazed them, Vishishmu, and it stole their mind. And we notice that it's very symmetrical. And uh, Prabhupada's giving this word symmetrical as a translation of marga. Marga means a path. So it's going along a particular path. And Prabhupada discusses the irony here in the purport that impersonalists worship Lord Shiva, but Lord Shiva's not impersonal, and Lord Shiva's abode is not impersonal. It's full of beings. It's full of birds. It's full of flowers. And it's full of uh, sensory pleasures. Beautiful things to see, beautiful things to smell, beautiful things to touch, and beautiful things to hear. So it, it's interesting that uh, Srila Prabhupada sometimes says that the worshippers of the demigods are better than the impersonalists because uh, at least they want to keep their form. They want to keep enjoyment. They want to keep relationships you know, impersonalism, the bliss of impersonalism is certainly greater than the bliss of just bodily enjoyment. So whatever happiness we get from eating and uh, sex and hearing and touching and smelling and all of these things, uh, the impersonalism is de- impersonal merging into the Brahman is definitely a superior enjoyment because it has to do with the spirit and therefore, people who achieve impersonal enjoyment will say, oh yes, this is, this is a superior enjoyment. Yet we see that impersonalists, uh, Abhisuddha Buddha, they're, they're not yet purified, and they often come back to this inferior enjoyment. It's, it's quite interesting. You know, we have examples, of course, in ordinary life, 
where a person will return to an inferior enjoyment. Like a person may enjoy junk food, say, and then they get a taste for home-cooked meals and organically grown vegetables, uh, but they may still sometimes go back to eating uh, junk food. Why? Uh, they may do it out of association or out of... Um, it's easy for them. They don't have to make any effort. They can just go to the store and buy some ready-made food full of preservatives instead of cooking. And so people may do that. Right? There, there's some reason that's still attracting them back to the lower thing. And this is what happens with impersonalism. Even though the, the enjoyment of impersonalism is spiritual and material sense enjoyment is material and superficial to the soul, there's something in material enjoyment which attracts the impersonalist. And that is that it involves relationship and it involves variety of tastes. You know, it's quite interesting that all of us have some attraction to variety. Prabhupada would often quote that variety is the mother of enjoyment. There's a lot of research that shows that we will eat far less at a meal if there's only one prep than we will eat if there's more preps. <laughs> you know, if there's ten preparations you're likely to eat a greater quantity of food and a greater quantity of calories than if there's fewer preps. Why? Because we like variety. And there's some biological basis for that, that our bodies are wired for variety so that we'll get our full quota of nutrients if we only eat the same thing all the time. Uh, sometimes people with some kind of uh, mental illness do that. They only eat one kind of food and then they have some sort of vitamin deficiency from doing that, some sort of nutritional deficiency. So our bodies are designed to thrive on variety and we get more enjoyment from variety. It, it, it's just how we're wired. We want something new. You know, we want something new. So I was recently reading a book by a devotee, Gopal Hari, on the meaning of the word maya. And I'm really enjoying this book. Unfortunately, it's uh, published by Oxford Press. and He sent me a complimentary copy, but the book sells for like $85. Uh, even the Kindle copy is like 80-something dollars. Uh, and I was feeling very uh, disappointed that it's not more widely available from a financial point of view. But anyway, I was really enjoying this book because it gave me some new information. How is the word Maya used in the Vedas? How is the word Maya used in the Upanishads? Uh, that evidently, uh, in general, the word Maya is used more for just some magical ability. Somebody achieves some Maya, some potency. <laughs> and the main way that Maya is used in the Bhagavatam uh, doesn't, isn't really so much prevalent in the Vedas and the Upanishads. In fact, the concept isn't there very much at all. And it was also interesting to read that uh, previously to like the Mahabharata and the Bhagavatam that, my, that these Maya potencies, these magical potencies were gained mostly through Yajna and then starting in the Mahabharata they were, they were achieved mostly through Yoga and thinking about the word Yoga Maya. Anyway, it was all something new. It was something I hadn't heard before. It was something I hadn't known before. And so I was very intrigued. I am very intrigued. And I'm finding myself, I had, I had started uh, on Jaiva Dharma, but I put that aside and I'm reading this other book about the, the nature of Maya. 
because it's new. Because it's, oh, something new. I, I remember one uh, Gaudi Vaishnav preacher that I went to hear some years ago, and he was telling all these Leela stories that I hadn't heard before. And everybody was so attracted. Oh, something new, something new. And I asked him several times, where are these stories from? You know, I hadn't heard them before. And he said, well, every year I travel around Raj and I collect more stories from the villagers. And I thought, huh, that may not necessarily be bona fide stories then. But there was some interest in that it was something new. There's some variety. And it's interesting that Krishna in his pastimes, he has repeating pastimes. So, you know, you sort of have both. That if you like something, you want to repeat it. Right? If you have a favorite preparation, that's the whole idea of a cookbook. You know, you have a, a, something that has worked really well. And so you write down the recipe, you write down the formula, and then you can reliably make it again and again and again because you like it so much you want to keep eating it again. But often with a recipe, you want to have variations on it, right? You want to vary these, maybe substitute walnuts for pecans or something like that. Or we think even if you're going to hear some piece of music, and today's verse is a lot about music, so we like to hear the same music over and over again. A person will have some, you know, there'll be some hit song. And so people want to hear that hit song over and over again. They'll, they'll play it over again and, on the radio. They'll listen to it over and I don't know if people listen to the radio anymore. Or they buy the music and they play it over and over again on their devices. But they also want to go to a live concert of the musicians so they can hear it somewhat differently, you know. They want it to be the same music but it's going to be a little different because it's live. And so Krishna has this, like it says that Radharani never cooks the same thing twice. At the same, also we can say that Krishna likes to repeat his pastimes over and over again. You know, he likes killing Agasura, so he has some pastime like that over and over again. Although it obviously is not the same Jiva who's playing the role of Agasura. So there's this variety. There's this repetition and there's this variety and when one is merged into the Brahman one doesn't get that it's just repetition and it's repetition of nothingness you're not even getting a repetition of the same song or a repetition of the same recipe or a repetition of the same activity you're doing nothing and you know we're not really wired to do nothing I remember when I was in high school uh, one of the other students, one of my classes, it was in our art class, so we used to be able to talk a lot during art class. And he looked at me and he said, have you ever done nothing all day? I said, I don't think so. He said, oh, that's because you don't smoke. And I thought, well, if, you're, if the way you're doing nothing all day is smoking, then smoking is also doing something. <laughs> Maybe it's not much, but it's still something. So... You know, for how long do we want to do nothing? And are we really doing nothing? Like if I go to the ocean and I'm just lying in the waves. I'm still doing something. There's some variety of the waves. There's some variety of the breezes. There's some variety of the birds. Right? There may some, be some variety of what I'm seeing underwater or whatever. You know, and, and when in the Brahman, there's nothing, 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 nothing. And so... 
just this sense of peace and relief. Uh, so it gets boring, and people would prefer to have a lower happiness than something that's higher but boring. <laughs> and so we see that these impersonalists, as Prabhupada says, they worship Lord Shiva, but Lord Shiva is not impersonal, and Lord Shiva's abode is not impersonal. So the nature of this personalism involves uh, particularly music. So it's of note that, you know, the, the scene is described, the flowers, the birds, and so forth, and then the fact that there's music. And th- this makes me, this verse today, especially the word marga, that the music is on a path, it makes me think of, of the Christian writer C.S. Lewis, who said that in hell there's noise, and in heaven there's either silence or music. I mean, it said that sometimes Lord Shiva's meditating under a tree. It's when the demigods went to see him, and I can't remember if this is when they went to see him after the Daksha sacrifice, or if it was to ask him to drink the poison from the ocean of milk. But anyway, one time, when the demigods went to see Lord Shiva, he's meditating under this tree, and there's no birds in the tree at all, so the birds won't disturb his meditation. So he has just silence. We have at our temple here, there's one woman who comes pretty much every day to do her own meditation. I don't know what kind of meditation she's doing. She'll meditate for hours, two, three, four, five, six hours. And it's interesting because the activities in the temple go on sometimes during the day when she's there. Sometimes there's some program going on and she's still there in her meditation even though we're chanting or we're speaking. Uh, But Lord Shiva likes to have his meditation in a completely quiet place. So complete silence where one is then meditating within and and hearing the music within. Uh, Or else one has external music and music that's according to some kind of rule. It's according to some kind of path. Now this is something that, in other words, music has a form. This idea is something the impersonalists don't get. They think that if you have a path for your music, if you have a form for your music, you're limiting it. And you, you want this unlimitedness of the impersonal. But I remember something Rudan Nandamaraj, a point that he made that I found uh, fascinating. I recently heard someone else make it from another, make the same point from another source. You know, a little baby makes noises that don't really have any particular form. They don't have vocabulary, they don't have grammar, there's, there's no form. You know, so I, I hang out with my granddaughter's family and she has a baby who's not yet talking, so he'll just go Sometimes it sounds like he's yodeling in the Swiss Alps. Uh, but because his sound doesn't have, it's not following the path, he's not able to communicate through his sound. His sound doesn't really communicate anything. I mean, he learns how to communicate through, like, gestures. You know, if he wants to, you pick him up. He puts up his, looks up at you, puts up his hands. Uh, but his sounds, are they're, they're limited. How much can he communicate with his sounds? I'm happy, I'm sad. You know, that's about it. And once then with their older child, who's almost three, so because he has vocabulary and because he has grammar, 
he's able to communicate far, far more than his baby brother. And as we gain in our education, as we gain in our vocabulary, right, the greater your vocabulary, the greater your understanding of grammar, the greater your ability to communicate. So that if you have an ordered language, you are able to communicate unlimitedly. We can think about this in art. So if you want to talk about, say, abstract art that doesn't follow any marga, doesn't follow any form, uh, how much can it communicate? Some general emotion, you know, just these sort of random lines, you know, and random colors, and you all right, well, this looks kind of peaceful, or this looks kind of exciting. And, but as soon as the art has a, has a, a real form, as soon as it's following some process, then all of a sudden you can have, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. And Shiva Bhakti Siddhanta, who wanted the, the dolls, the dioramas, you know, that you have all this order, then you have all this information, and then you can communicate unlimitedly. So what the impersonalists don't understand is that when things go according to an order, that opens up the gates of unlimitedness. And when you destroy the order, uh, when, then all you have is, is chaos and very little communication at all. So in the higher realms, music is according to an order. Now we think about uh, an order in terms of there may be a pre-written song that's according to certain rules of rhythm and harmony. You know, and you can write down the song in, in in musical notation. In the West, we have our musical notation. And then anyone can read, who knows how to read that music, they can play that song, right? And the song will come out more or less uh, with some, as we were talking about earlier, a repetition of the song, but with some uh, variety. But there's also a song like the traditional Indian music, where you have a certain raga and a certain tala, and then the instruments, the players of the instruments are kind of talking to each other. You'll see this if a dancer is included also. There's a conversation going on with the music, but it's according to certain parameters. The raga and the tala give a particular parameter. And we were just discussing this in our study of hermeneutics, that if you use hermeneutics, uh, which is uh, like the Vedic hermeneutics was often called mimamsa, it's not that you're always going to get one correct answer. If you're looking, you know, what does this passage of Scripture mean? So, you know, we often find in the commentaries of the Acharyas, they might say, well, these words can mean this, it can also mean this, it can also mean this. I mean, like Jula Prabhupada in this translation, says musical sounds pleasing to the ear. And I thought that was particularly interesting because that's not exactly what it says. If you look at the Sanskrit, akarnya means they were hearing it, but manaharam literally means it was stealing the mind. It was stealing the mind. So a more literal translation would be that it was captivating their minds. But Prabhupada was saying that it was pleasing to the ear. So there's more than one way to translate a particular verse, and we'll even find that Srila Prabhupada will translate the same verse in different ways at different times. You know, he may be translating a verse in a particular way in the Bhagavatam, and then when that verse is quoted in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, he's translating it in a different way, and then he may refer to that verse in a lecture and be translating it 
in a different way. And so, and then when we're talking about subtle meanings, you know, we have the commentary of the acharyas on different verses, and different acharyas will give different commentaries that explore different subtleties. So there's this variety, but it's within a parameter. You know, when you're going to have the, there's rules, there's principles, there's tools that give you the parameters of explaining scripture. And anything outside those parameters is bogus. But within those parameters, you have some space for movement. So it's like that with music. You know, in, in, in Western music, we have jazz that has improvisation. It's very similar to this concept of, of Vedic music, where you have a certain parameter, and within that parameter, you can improvise. Uh, the, such a thing is done also, of course, in poetry. So in poetry, a lot of the grammatical rules of prose are not applicable. You, you, don't, you, you can have a run-on sentence, you can have a sentence fragment, you can have things somewhat out of order, uh, talking about the order, you know, in terms of prose. You can mix up where your subject and verb goes, for example. And uh, in prose it might be confusing. But then you have a different set of orders for poetry. You have poetry that has to have a particular meter. I had a whole discussion with a devotee yesterday about poetry. And we were analyzing some of the poetry this devotee has written. And when I was reading some of it, I said, okay, well, here you've got consonants and you've got alliteration, you've got nice imagery, but you've lost the music. You know, there's, there's no music anymore. So in poetry or in prose, you have a certain, again, you have a leeway, but it's within a certain parameter. And as soon as you go out of that, then it, it's grating. And when you go out of the range, it becomes disturbing. So in order for things to be pleasing, there needs to be variety. <laughs> there needs to be newness. At the same time, we like some repetition. I mean, in poetry also, we like repetition, isn't it? Right? A lot of poetry has repetition of the initial sound, repetition of the internal sound, repetition of a word, repetition of an image. Right? There's, there's all sorts of pleasing repetition or we have a, in a music or poetry we have a chorus that repeats. Right? But at the same time with variety and according to a particular structure. And the better one gets at that the more pleasing it is. And when you, when you really master these techniques of music and poetry, and of course they're very connected because a lot of music has lyrics, which are poems. And as soon as you master them, your mind becomes captivated. And I, when, you, when you really get this with music particularly, I think we've all experienced that, especially with music, it's very easy for our minds to become just completely captivated. You know, we have the story of the Pied Piper who captivates all the rats and then all the children with music. And in our modern day, we have uh, people who are just completely entranced by different musicians. And of course, the primary musician is Krishna, who's able with music to enchant everybody. One of the four main qualities of Krishna is that he's an expert flute player, of course. <laughs> well, Balaram also plays the flute. I'm sure many incarnations of the Lord also plays, play flute. His coward boys play flutes. 
the gopis, many of the gopis play flutes. I know Saibya, Rupa Goswami describes the gopi Saibya as a very expert flute player. But Krishna's flute playing is so incredible that when he's playing his flute, each cow is thinking, well, Krishna's only calling me. Or each gopi's thinking, well, Krishna's only calling me. And Krishna is able to melt stones and make rivers flow backwards and calves just stop drinking milk and just by hearing this music from his flute. And that's just one instrument, you know, one can uh, not even imagine when Krishna and the cowherd boys or Krishna and the gopis are getting together and having a concert. You know, they're, they're having a concert, so the different members, they're playing their flutes, they're playing their stringed instruments, they're playing their percussion instruments, and, and some kind of symphony beyond. There's, there's a wonderful uh, description in the Ananda Vrindavan Champu of the Holy Festival and how the personifications of different ragas, they, they come as, as beautiful women and they sing in various ways. And they're, you know, they're having this concert that accompanies the holy festival. You know, nowadays people try to imitate that. Playing holy has become very popular in the West. And I went once with uh, my youngest son and his wife to a race. It was the color race or something. Instead of circumambulating a temple or deities, they were just circumambulating some, some uh, piece of grass. And as they're running, there are certain places they're throwing colors at each other. And there was accompanying music. Right? There was at each color station there was music and then at the end there was music and everybody's jumping up and down and throwing colors at each other. And of course the devotees have taken advantage of this situation by having uh, spiritual holy festivals with kirtan accompanying the throwing of colors. But this is what goes on in the spiritual world. There's holy festivals and while they're throwing all the different colors at each other, there's musicians. They're playing all different instruments and they're singing and so forth. And what to speak of uh, the Rasalila. So the Ras Lila is all about music. It's all about music and dancing. And when Krishna has his Ras Lila on the earth planet, these great demigods, I hear Gandharva means the musical sounds, but Gandharvas are also the musicians. So they're coming to the Ras Lila and they're trying to uh, accompany the Ras Lila with their music. And sometimes they're just astonished. Right? So there's all these uh, singers and musicians and of course, Krishna can also join in as a musician, and then there's music creating by the uh, the bells on the feet and the, by the rustling of their of their clothes. I remember when I was a teenager, it was some rock and roll band, and uh, on the record album, it said percussion on such and such a song was also provided by the rustling of the lead singer's silk blouse. <laughs> it always struck me. But it's like that in, in Krishna's Raslila, that the movements of their clothing, the movements of their jewelry is also harmonizing with the music. Or when Krishna's dancing on Kaliya, and then it, where was the music? You know, the music seemed to be in Krishna's own mind, and the demigods are coming and they're trying to play music to accompany Krishna's dancing, as we were saying in traditional Indian music, There'll be this back-and-forth conversation between the musicians and the dancers. And sometimes they, they couldn't. The Apsaras and the Gantarvas, they weren't able to keep up with this music of, of Krishna's dancing. They were, they were sometimes just stunned. They didn't know how to do this. 
So this is the higher realms have things that are orderly, things that are full of variety. There's this, this sort of uh, harmonization of paradox between something that's orderly and repetitive and something that's full of variety and full of surprise. And it comes out with something that's astonishing, where a person becomes mesmerized, a person becomes entranced. They're just amazed. Vishishmu, they're amazed. Wow, what is this music? And their minds are stolen away while they're hearing it. You know, and Again, we've all had some experience like that, where we're hearing some music and we're just like, wow! And sometimes it's a particular part of the music, and with our, our devices today, we can, you know, go to that place and listen to that part over and over again. And every time we listen to it, we just stop doing everything else, and we're just amazed at this. This is music, and we may and then start dancing, of course, to the music. So this situation in Lord Shiva's abode is very favorable for Krishna consciousness. Now. That's an interesting idea. Vishaya chariya se rase majiya muke bolo hari hari. Vishaya, the enjoyment of the senses. So we're told that we should give up our wanting to enjoy the senses. Yes? That this is the only price to pay for Krishna consciousness is this wanting to enjoy the senses. So how is it that there's all this, you know, sensory enjoyment going on? Right? Uh, today's Lochandas Thakur's uh, appearance day. And so he's saying, Vishaya Chariya Serase Majiya Mukhe Bolo Hari Hari. Give up all sense gratification. I mean, it's interesting when Gopal Kumar sees Lord Shiva beyond the Brahma Jyoti. His abode beyond the spiritual world. The Prachetas here are going to uh, Lord Shiva's abode within the material world. And Gopal Kumar said, it looks like Lord Shiva's a great hedonist. It looks like he's a great sense enjoyer, but he's existing beyond liberation. So are we talking about here somebody giving up impersonalism to go down to some lower form of sense enjoyment? Uh, no, it's not that at all. It, it's not that at all. The, what drives the impersonalist to their lower forms of sense gratification is their lack of knowledge that there is a higher and spiritual form of sense gratification. They want sense gratification. They want relationships. They want variety. But they don't know how to do that without the lower thing. They, they just, they don't have, a Prabhupada would say, a poor fund of knowledge, such a, a poetic way of saying uh, they're ignorant. <laughs> Instead of just saying they don't know anything, they have a poor fund of knowledge. They go to their knowledge bank account, there's not much knowledge in there. So they don't know that there's a higher realm of sense pleasure that is actually spiritual or spiritually conducive. So certain types of atmosphere are conducive to tamagun. Disorder, we have the word marga again, order. Disorder, chaos. You probably would say cleanliness is next to godliness. 
if you have things that, if things are not neat, even if they're clean, if they're not neat, if they're not symmetrical, if they're not ordered, it's very much in the mode of ignorance. Or things that are artificial. You know, here we have natural beauty, the natural beauty of clear water, and real flowers. I remember when my father first visited a Hare Krishna temple and he said, wow, you have so many real flowers. You know, in India they think nothing of having a huge display of real flowers for a festival that in the West would only be there for very wealthy people. But Prabhupada speaks about this, Prabhupada writes about this, that having natural opulences is good for spirituality. You know, there are certain environments that tend to provoke the mode of passion. And there are certain environments that tend to provoke the mode of goodness. And there are certain environments that tend to provoke bhakti. Now, bhakti is a hoitukiya pratikta. Bhakti can be engaged in and felt even in hell. Even in a disordered, dirty environment. We had devotees who were in prison. Years ago in India, devotees were imprisoned for doing sankirtan. And they did mental artiques and a mental rathiyatra in the jail. Um, my god, Brother Sridhar was telling me about this. And one of the devotees who was there had this intense spiritual experience doing this uh, devotional activity in jail. Or we think in the book Salted Bread, how these uh, devotees were put into Soviet labor, labor camps for distributing Srila Prabhupada's books. And there, you know, in absolute filth and disease and insect infestation and in the association of criminals and so forth with no devotional books and no prasadam and, and you know it was the situation was horrible there certainly wasn't beautiful music uh, still they one of them left his body and undoubtedly went back to Godhead so bhakti is not dependent on any material situation one can become fully Krishna conscious even in a prison cell with murderers and rapists at the same time, uh, one should try to make a nice situation for bhakti if one can. Bhaktivinoda Thakur, in his, I think it's in his Sharanagati, when he's writing songs about accepting what's favorable, and he has this song about how he's going to make this place uh, in, in Mayapur area, and call it Sukhitakund, and there he's going to build a throne for the Empress Tulsi, and he's describing how he's going to have Malati lines and you know what flowers he's going to plant and what kind of environment he's going to set up uh, there. And you can, of course, go there in Swarup Ganj to Bhakti Vinod's place. So he set up a place that was very conducive for Bhakti to accept what's favorable and reject what's unfavorable. So, as far as possible, I mean, we shouldn't put all our effort into the situation we should be putting our effort into the bhakti. You know, if you have a well-appointed kitchen, you still have to cook something in it. <laughs> you know, the little kitchen that I have here, it, it's a very little kitchen. And so, I don't have, I have a stovetop, but not an oven. I have an electric toaster oven. When I want to use my toaster oven, I have to take where I put my dishes to dry. I have to move that. I have to, because my counter is so small and I have to move over my toaster oven. So I don't have room to do any kind of, you know, really extensive cooking. But I, I can still cook something nice here. Right? 
you can say, uh, all right, well, whatever I have, let me use it for bhakti. Uh, one second, someone's messaging me. But at the same time, if we have the ability to make a nice facility, you know, if we have the space in a home and we have the money and we can make a nice kitchen, so we do that. Or like here, the altar I have, it's actually a very nice altar. It was the, a devotee who lived in this room previously put in some furniture. And there's, there's like a shelf that you can use for an altar. And it's quite nice, but it's sort of recessed. So it doesn't get very much light. You have to put a separate light there. But it, it's just a shelf. You know, it's just a... Whereas you see many devotees, when they have an altar, they have, you know, some beautifully carved wooden thing. And so if you have the facility, you know, if you have the funds, you have the space, you have the facility, then you make a wonderful arrangement that's conducive to bhakti. And if you don't, you do bhakti in what facility you have. It's... And we don't get so wrapped up in the facility that we forget what it's for. No, we don't get so absorbed in making a nice situation that we forget what we're making it for. Then it becomes like polishing the cage and not feeding the bird. But the concept is there, that there's a suitable atmosphere for bhakti. And of course, in Goloka Vrindavan, there's the most suitable atmosphere for bhakti where everything is is beautiful and harmonious, full of variety, and yet harmony, beyond compare, and everything is alive. Everything is, is natural to the nth degree. Uh, and so Lord, Lord Shiva also, he has this wonderful place where everything is conducive to bhakti. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions, chastisements, the book uh, you mentioned early on is uh, The Nature of Maya. Oh, expensive book. I'll show it to you one second. What's the title? Can you see that? Okay. It's, uh, I opened up. What's going on here? Um, something's going on with my phone. What's the title? It's called Maya in the Bhagavad Purana, Human Suffering and Divine Play by Gopal Gupta. That's Gopal Hari. He's the younger brother of Radhika Raman. It's a fascinating book. I, I mean, maybe you can get the local library to order it, or see if your local university library will order it. Um, you know, like he sent me a copy as a gift. It's interesting in the other list of titles in this series from Oxford. Another one's also by a devotee, a Vaishnav poet in early modern Bengal. Um, by Rembrandt of Lutherhorns, that's Gopinathacharya. So I was thinking, well, that would be nice to read too, but it's probably another 85 bucks to get that. 
Uh, yeah, I can't see spending like $80 on a book, but uh, it's a, just fascinating. It's, it's become a can't put down. If you like philosophy, it's not a storybook. Uh, it's become a not, not put down for me. But yeah, you'd have to get, you'd have to ask a lot. I mean, unless you have some very wealthy friend who wants to get it for you. I can put the ISBN into the chat if you like. But yeah, you could ask the library, especially university library, um, might be willing to to order that. I think it's, you know, they're kind of uh, designing these for university libraries. Uh, like, slight comment. Yeah, what's that? Mm -hmm. uh, you reminded me of, uh, that was, it was a lot of nice stuff, but it reminded me of, like, when we used to be in the art department, with Perica especially, and, um, you know, before the archives, but we had tapes of Prabhupada doing the bhajans. Mm. And some reason or other, there were certain bhajans that, Brickett is like a fanatical artist, you know, he paints, he doesn't like, you know, mess around. I used to stop and reach locally, whatever, but he'll, he'll paint until it's like, you know, there's no light or he passes out or something. <laughs> but when certain bhajans of Prabhupada would go on, we would both stop painting and get down on the floor where the speakers were and just listen to Prabhupada playing harmonium, you know, listen... Because it's just like we couldn't, you know, manohar, that's what, you know, mm. so uh, just couldn't resist. Like every time we had to like stop painting and just get down and spontaneously hear that, hear problems, you know. And then when you were talking about, you know, these guys in jail and they're still doing bhakti, it reminded me of like going into Kushakwada's place and people were always like, amazed. you probably went in there too. It's like so messy. Like, you know, you're being nice when you say messy. It was filthy, really. I mean, you know, he, had, he gave me, I lent him a painting, and after 15 years, he never dusted it. He gave it back to me before we went to India. It had like a half inch of dust. But, you know, he liked the painting. He said it really inspired him. Rupa Goswami with Lord Chaitanya. But, I mean, totally, you can't even like describe it. And I know him since he was nine, so he was always like that. He wasn't like putting it on or something. But... People were always amazed, like, wow, this guy's producing all this ecstatic literature he's living like, like there's no reason to live like that. I mean, he wanted, you know, he couldn't see any difference. Was it, like, how could it, it was like a mystery, like, some guys live like that, but they don't produce all this literature. Most people who live like that. Yes. So, it's like, wow, still people are amazed when they think about it, just thinking about it. It's weird. Thank you. Thank you for both of those. You, you were probably in Kushikwai's office or his abode, maybe once. No, no. Most women didn't, you know. Yeah, yeah. He, he wasn't, you know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's like amazing, like dust and roaches and just boxes of books and stuff. Nothing unnecessary. I mean, yeah, it was unnecessarily messy, unbelievably messy, but... You know, he didn't have, he didn't accumulate extra stuff. It was just had to do with his books, you know, paper for printing. He probably didn't even see it. <laughs> One time, Dravida joked, like we were up there talking Dravida and myself and uh, Mahamantra, who was Swami, you know, now. But 
And the funny part was, Mahamantra was trying to cajole Kusha into giving him a 20% discount for brahmacharis. But, you, you know, Kusha wouldn't have it, and he wasn't doing it. So anyway, after a while, Dravida got bored, and he was heading out the door. And as he was going out, he, he, he chuckled and said, you know, Kusha has the right idea. Why clean a floor when you can just put a whole new layer of newspaper on? Because he, <laughs> he did. He had newspaper. Mm-hmm. buy a newspaper, and he would just throw it on the floor, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't think he did it purposely to make it clean. He just, you know, one of the... One of those viral uh, things he did, but it was funny at the time. Kush has the right idea, you know. Why clean the floor? You can just put a whole new layer, <laughs> put a positive spin on it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, no one can deny. I mean, people are still reading his translations, and you know, that may be corrected here and there, but thousands, hundreds of books, hundreds of books. Yes. Babadook. Yes. Well, I think of uh, Ramsi Das Babadook is also like that. Yeah. Now, one thing you said about abstract art that it had was just random. But, you know, a lot of, being an artist, I'm not going to, like, put up a red flag here, but a lot of abstract art is planned, you know. It's not just, like, sometimes jazz is compared to that. You said jazz was... um, Spontaneous, akin to ragas, right? Yes, it's within the parameter. If you follow the history of, of modern jazz, you'll see that Arnett Coleman and, um, uh, yeah, who is it? Uh, Coltrane, they got to a certain point in their, in their jazz music where they were attracted to hearing, like, Shanai, Indian Shanai, and then they thought, wow, these guys are way ahead of us, you know, these guys have been doing this for years, billions of years, you know, and we're just you know, blowing saxes and everything, but these guys do it according to a certain order, so, but uh, what I was going to say about the abstract art, it is some order, it depends who it is, yeah, there's sometimes someone just throws stuff there, but they, they do try to order it in a certain way, you know. To some extent, yeah, to some extent, I mean, I, you know, I had, I, I, my sister was an artist, one of my sisters, she studied at Cooper Union Art School, and I had some training in undergrad and yeah there, there's some but not as much I mean I I remember uh, before you know, once I decided I was going to move into the Hare Krishna temple but I wasn't 18 yet so I'm there in my art classes in college and the teachers wanting us to do all this just you know symbolic and abstract art and I wanted to have, paint pictures of Krishna <laughs> wanted to do philosophical art or Krishna art, you know, and the, the teacher kept harassing me. You know, stop drawing forms and stop. I made this one sculpture of wax figures in a chicken wire cage, like trying to get out, you know, trying to get liberated from the world. And she says, this is beautiful, but we're trying to just do something abstract. <laughs> I guess I don't want to do something abstract. I want to do something yeah, well. I went up to the University of Florida Art Department a couple times. Uh, I forget why, but I was pretty amazed that um, most of it was abstract, or at least semi-abstract. And I, I talked to a few of the students, just happened to be walking, or I'd see them here and there, and I, they didn't get hardly any figure training at all. It's just like, what? Wow. I mean, you know, what do you why they have an art school. Anybody, you know, you can learn to do that stuff at home. You don't need to, right. 
you know, the whole idea of going to this classic going to art school is you have figures, you learn how to draw, proportion, anatomy, you know, perspective, right, right. all that. But they're not, you know, they're not necessarily honing in on that. Right, or... Yeah? I thought you explained very nicely that how, you know, the repetition, and even, you know, in poetry, it's it's there and it's pleasing, and, and then it's nuanced, and so the same pastimes... Uh, I was reading this R.K. Narayan, a very famous uh, Indian writer, and he... Um, He's talking about how the villagers, they come together at night after working in the fields and the Brahmin who's, the village Brahmin who's memorized the epics and the Puranas and he's got the book in front of him just, you know, for a reference, but actually he's memorized all these things and, and the villagers, they don't mind hearing the same stories over and over again because you always get something new. Mm. And uh, my experience, and and so you know, but it, and in one other thing, that this, this uh, Monterey Pop is a documentary, uh, you know, and Janis Joplin was there, and Jimi Hendrix, and different people, and 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 rock is kind of chaotic in a way. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, but at the end, they had Ravi Shankar and Ali Akbar Khan. And it's one of the first times that they, you know, the, they'd been exposed to this sort of Indian music. And so it, it's this raga that you're explaining that has some structure, but then there's some improvisation. And I was interested to hear you say it's like the musicians talking to each other. So Ravi Shankar, he's playing, at some point, he's playing riffs on the sitar, and then Ali, Ali Akbar Khan, he's repeating the same thing on the tabla. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So so they're going back and forth like this, and this is, it's complicated because the riffs are, uh, you know, 15, 20 seconds long. I mean, they're long. And to be able to, you know, remember that and then just run it back, that in itself was mind-boggling. What they did was they were doing these riffs back and forth and they were speeding it up and then at some point they were playing the same thing at the same time and it was improv. Wow. And everybody got it. It was like a non-verbal communication. People just left their seats. They couldn't believe it that they were that tuned into each other that they could do that. And just imagine, this is, this is the lowest of the middle planets. And it's Kali Yuga. Mm-hmm. And we have musicians that can do that. And do that with dancers. You know, my daughter showed me things with, with her dance teacher where there's, you know, the sitar player and the tabla player and the dancer and they're all talking to each other. And so what to speak of on the higher planets, you know, like Indra's planet where it's a thousands and thousands of... And here's Lord Shiva's abode. But this is Lord Shiva's abode within the material world. And then if we want to go to the, to the spiritual, and what is the music, you know, just think about it. Particularly in Ananda Vrindavan Champu, there's these descriptions of the music in the Raslila and the descriptions of the music at Holi, those two times in, in particular, where... 
you know, I like how Pushkarpu was saying that even the most absorbed painter, he wants to stop and just listen to a particular section of Prabhupada's singing. And one becomes so stunned by this music. You're talking about people getting out of their seats. One becomes so stunned. You know, the calves just stop drinking. The, the birds can't hold their perch in the tree. The, the jipatis are burning on the stoves. Mm-hmm. That people, manaharam, their minds are stolen. And they're, they're, they become so astonished that their minds become... Uh, stolen mm-hmm. by this. So how can we even, you know, like Prabhupada says, we can go to whatever planet we want. He said, if we want to stay on this earthly planet with its planning commissions, we can stay here. <laughs> but if we actually want real happiness, we should go stop, to the... Stop gap solutions. Yes, yeah. stop gap solutions and planning commissions. You know, Hare Krishna. So if, we, if we're tired of this world, of that, you know, if we can get some idea of the astonishing music that's capable to be done in Kali Yuga on the earth planet, how much can we be entranced by the music of the devotees and of Krishna? Alright, I think I'm going to stop here. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai. Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai.